Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. This show is dedicated to the design of our cities and the ways that the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. In this episode, I will be speaking with architect and educator George Knight on his work at Yale University. His profound dedication to architectural heritage is evident as he meticulously intertwines the past and the present with projects ranging from the restoration of the St. Moore Chapel to the iconic Yale British Arts Center designed by Louis Kahn. His work stands as a guardian of history, seamlessly blending tradition with modernity and significantly contributing to the larger dynamic context of both the Yale campus and the city. But before I begin the conversation, I would like to tell you a little bit more about my guest. George Knight is the principal of Knight Architecture based in New Haven, Connecticut. Prior to that, he worked for about a decade with the internationally recognized firm of Caesar Pellian Associates, leading projects throughout Asia. He graduated, graduated cum laude from Princeton University, winning the Willard Thorpe Thesis Prize, and he went on to graduate school at Yale School of Architecture, where he also won the Distinguished Drawing Prize and where he has taught since 2004. He is currently the Robert A. M. Stern Visiting Chair at Yale School of Architecture. He sits on the Board of Directors of the International Festival of Arts and Ideas, the Board of Governors of the Ivy Club in Princeton, New Jersey, and the City of New Haven's, Haven's Historic District Commission. George, it is a real pleasure to be speaking with you. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join On Cities. It is great to be with you, Carrie. Great to be with you. George, travel is an amazing gift that allows us to experience new cultures and ways of life. You visited Italy as a teenager, and while there, you seem to have had an experience that influenced your career path much later in life. Tell us about this. Well, I, I have to begin by saying how, uh, how, how inspiring it is to be speaking uh, on your podcast entitled On Cities, because I think uh, cities shape us. I know they have in my life. And um, this experience that you mentioned was, was one of the most impactful. Um, I'll say, though, that I was, I was born in New York City. Um, and I, though we left when I was six years old, I have vivid memories of loving, I was going to say loving that city, but of course, as a six-year-old, I didn't know any other cities. It was simply the the, the physical life that I had there, and I have vivid memories of, um, you know, the being surrounded by architecture and fascinating form and shapes and materials, being um, on subways and in park spaces, in um, fine weather and bad weather, and hearing the noises and the uh, activity of the city so much so that. Um, when my parents announced that they wanted to move myself and my three tiny brothers to uh, to Connecticut, um, instead of instead of as we said our prayers at night, instead of praying that we find a nice place in Connecticut, I found myself praying that we didn't find a nice place in Connecticut. Um, but indeed, uh, 
as luck would have it, we we did move to Connecticut, and I grew up um, again not knowing too much about other different types of places. Um, uh, suburban Connecticut had been my home since living in New York, and I hadn't really traveled much. And it was then as a uh, as a seventeen year old, and and of course when you're seventeen, sixteen, your heart is so much more open, uh, and your your head is in some ways clearer uh and you feel things so much more deeply and i remember we we had this great fortune to to go to italy and landed in rome um where my mother had spent some time and uh we uh you know basically getting off the plane um worked our way to the piazza navona and i'll never forget that experience because uh though i i didn't i absolutely did not have the term urbanism or urbanity in my personal lexicon, I, I felt that I was in the presence of a wildly different and wonderful um, space and, and not simply space, but sort of culture. And uh, one that was so different than suburban Connecticut and one that electrified me. And, you know, from that moment forward, I knew that I really wanted to invest myself in the life and culture of cities. I mean, I, that's a beautiful story. And having walked through the Piazza Navona, uh, for anyone who has had the really the the gift to have been able to walk through that space, it is an extraordinary space that sears itself in the mind. So I can see how it would have impressed you at 17 as it continues to impress so many of us today. Um, but you know what what's what's funny is that you didn't study architecture from the onset, though. You know, yes, you might have expected that uh, that uh, with this great revelatory experience, I, I would move directly into it. And I, I, I'll say I, I have always been very interested in in art and um, you know in fine arts, art history, but also fine arts, painting and drawing and such. And um, and and that that was also feverishly interesting uh, from visits to Italy and and just frankly uh, uh, the course of my own education. But uh, I, I think I was probably, unfortunately, intimidated by misunderstanding about architecture and, and urban design, wherein um, it, it seemed as if the, the quantitative emphasis, what I, maybe what I now understand in more the realm of engineering than of, than of architectural design, uh, you know, sort of I bullied myself away from from architecture thinking that it would be uh, much more focused on on quantitative as much as qualitative things and 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 so you know in some ways very happily I I found other things to study uh, as an undergraduate so I continued to do lots of artwork and study art history and history and you know writing and language and stuff but I ended up majoring funnily enough in um, in religion. Uh, which I used to joke with my father was a kind of get rich quick scheme gone wrong. <laughs> and so far as uh, it was a, it was a little bit arcane, but I was again, as a young person, a freshman uh, captivated by a class uh, called the self in world religions. Uh, and, and that really reeled me into several other classes and ended up becoming my major. Hmm. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about how that plays out, maybe even in the selection of some of your your work, uh, of your independent practice. But, 
before going there, I mean, you had a very long stint, a decade long, um, at the internationally recognized firm of Caesar Pelli and Associates. And as I understand it, the work that you led there, which was mostly large scale um, projects throughout Asia, is very different than the kind of work that you do now. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Okay. And I wonder if it'd be even worth talking a bit about how I, I went from being a non-architect even to, to finding my way to architecture school. Because I, I um, as I mentioned, I'd, I'd had a longstanding interest in in um, fine arts. And I, uh, after, I, I, after graduation, I had some adventures and such, but I was working in um, public television because I was sort of interested in storytelling and films and, and, and such. And I wondered if that might be a route for me. And I, I sort of, you know, it's so important to do things that actually you, you realize might not be for you. Uh, you know, it's the good and the bad. Right. And, and so while I had a wonderful work situation, I realized that my skills were not going to be all that well suited to the kind of work that I was seeing and doing at this um, television station. But I did have this wonderful colleague who I remember seeing uh walking towards me along the hall and he had a big beaming smile on his face and i had to ask him what why are you so uh, happy about it and he said uh well he had been able to he had long interest in being an architect and had uh recently been uh uh accepted to architecture school and i thought to myself how is that possible how can you be an architect i thought we had uh, sort of moved into a, a different fate. And and he explained that he had gone to uh, your alma mater, uh, the Graduate School of Design at Harvard, where they had a summer program. And uh, it was sort of a simulation of a of an architecture school studio. And I, 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 upon learning about that, I signed up for it immediately and absolutely loved it. And that, that became um, the springboard for me to then sort of divert myself towards uh, architecture, which came in the form of, you know, um, working uh, in a first small practice uh, in my hometown and then ultimately uh, applying to a number of different architecture schools. And I'm lucky enough to get into Yale and I, where, where I went sort of begrudgingly, funnily enough, because um, I've lived in the city of New Haven for more than 30 years now uh, with uh, having had no expectation to do so. But again, life, life presented great opportunities. So. Yeah, well, actually, and I think New Haven is really central to much of your work, um, and and I and I think that you know I think we could probably go back and forth to talk a little about about the Pelly experience, but I think it wouldn't be premature to just dive into um, to really the choice to open up your own office and pursue the type of work that you're that you pursue now, because while I I think your work is varied in scope and in language. Um, I, I think there is a body of work that you're building both um, academically and culturally, um, specifically with the projects that you've done for Yale University that I think represent a growing body of work. Um, and, and perhaps to be able to set the context for the work, I was wondering if you could share with our listeners, from your point of view, if you could really describe, let's say, Yale from uh, both an architectural and urban point of view. I mean, I remember... yes. I had the chance to visit Yale for the first time almost a decade ago. You took me on a what is still one of the most memorable walks of the campus that I ever had. Um, so can you describe a little bit uh, about this extraordinary environment? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, um, 
I, I, exactly. I, I couldn't, I don't think I could uh, uh, begin to talk about Yale. I think it's it's inseparable with the, the city of New Haven. I know you're an architect in, in Miami, and I bet you feel the same way about the University of Miami and, and its host city. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of an interesting story insofar as uh, geologically, you know, the city of New Haven is, is really kind of a delta city where you have a, a, a fairly large, slow-moving river that feeds into Long Island Sound. And there's a, something close to a, a natural harbor. Um, and the sound itself is such an important, um, great estuary and protected water uh, area, fishery, et cetera. So it's no surprise that there's always been you know, human habitation around it. And there was a settlement of uh, Quinnipiac Indians and what the settlement itself was called Quinnipiac and, and inhabited by Quinnipiac Indians. And in uh, 1638, a group of uh, Europeans, English um, Puritans who uh, were fleeing religious persecution in Europe um, came to uh, Massachusetts and then a group splintered off and came uh, to found this new haven for themselves uh at at the site of this quinnipiac settlement um and uh they it's it's thought to be one of the early moments of um urban design in america wherein this group uh as it were drew a, a giant square in the sand of course uh, speaking metaphorically but uh and then subdivided that into nine nine smaller squares so it's sort of tic-tac-toe board and uh, they made the center square uh, their public space for grazing, and they built their first meeting house on that center square. Uh, and what to me is so fascinating is that 1638. So that that plan is is still totally evident. You don't have to look for it. It's the major streets of the town are in fact those streets that were laid out at that time. And. Uh, you know, touching on this issue of religion, it's it's interesting that the Puritans were a were a, a, a very. I don't know that I would love to have lived in Puritan um, New England. They were very severe uh, people who were intent on creating a theocratic um, utopian settlement, and they had for themselves didn't celebrate Christmas, for instance, because it was too frivolous. Um, they uh, they set for themselves the the image of the biblical Israelites as their progenitors. And so they um, they look to uh, the, the Old Testament to find patterns. And indeed, the Temple of Solomon was a physical thing that they felt that they had found a, uh, a, 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 a drawing, an engraving that they'd seen in Holland before they crossed the Atlantic. Um, suggested a uh, an image of what that temple might look like where the 12 tribes of Israel would have births as it were th three on each force of the four sides of this large square that they had drawn so the the, the city itself has this image of uh, Zion as it were uh, as God's holy city uh, and um, again it's so interesting that that uh, remains even in a very secular city that is now uh, that that remains physically in place. Would have been but, what, um, an, what an inspired beginning. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Uh, and, and you know, <clears throat> to to you know to just touch on the the growth of Yale. So Yale 
Yale begins um, in, um, and, and Yale certainly is far better known perhaps to uh, people around the world than this town of New Haven, which is indeed uh, 135,000, 140,000 person strong uh, uh, town. But um, it was not always so insofar as uh, Yale began in um, 1701, it's founded. So again, that's 60 years after the town was founded, um, largely to uh, educate uh, ministers to, you know, to carry forward who were the, who were the leaders of this community. And so it was born out of, you know, largely a theological school. And I think, as I understand it, through the Civil War, uh, it operated uh, what was called a truth and piety curriculum, which sounds really exciting, surely to your to your students and mine. Um, uh, but again, you can you can sort of sense the the severity or the fundamentalism of the of these early uh, founders of of the town um, and uh, the city of New Haven. Funnily enough, so Yale is a fairly fairly regional uh, school. Uh, uh, the city of New Haven, um, after some slow starts, gains a lot of momentum with uh, the Industrial Revolution. And many people would know the name Eli Whitney, who is probably best known for inventing the cotton gin, which which really changed so much of the way the um, pre- and post-Civil War economy uh, developed. But never, I guess, I'm told, never made money on the cotton gin itself, came back to New Haven, where he'd been a student at Yale, came back to New Haven and uh, developed all sorts of um, industrial uh, enterprises and, and uh, assembly line technology and such. So he was a great inventor and, um, you know, is, is very much responsible for the, uh, the industrial revolution in America, which took hold full force in New Haven. And, and the city was industrially very, very strong. So you had a a booming city, as it were, with a rather small local uh, college within it. And then um, over the course of uh, decades, and particularly the turn of the century, when this great industrialized wealth uh, was, you know, diverted to the, the university, uh, coincident with maybe declining industrial fate fortune of the city, uh, they they went on a kind of inverse track where the, the city itself uh you know, started to decline while the university really became predominant and, and surely had shed its truth and piety curriculum in favor of something more like what we think of today as a modern university with a diverse uh, set of, you know, programs and interests. In fact, one of the things that I really love about uh, Yale is, uh, you know, it, it's maybe not surprising, for instance, that Yale has a law school and a medical school, as many great universities do. But what I love is that it has graphic design and um, midwifery and forestry and architecture and photography and drama. It might even be best known for a drama school graduate program. So um, so in in that setting, um, you know, the city of New Haven and Yale have this, this braided growth and, and I guess regression. But one of the things that stamps the Yale campus indelibly uh, is the fact that it, um, it, it grows within an existing city, you know, arguably a 17th or 18th century city grid uh, into which this increasingly prosperous university has to continuously grow. And so one can chart a, a whole series of architectural uh, flavors and 
agendas as as time moves on. So uh, it it begins with um, uh, more or less freestanding buildings and large open blocks, uh, and then as as the university grows, it moves towards uh, city blocks that are enclosed by buildings. And again, one one might have images. My, my undergraduate at Princeton University, for instance, is largely characterized by rather open, almost bucolic. It was farmland that was then converted to campus land. And you tended to have luxurious amount of space between buildings and broad vistas and, and you know, powerful forms on the landscape. Um, Yale's very different than that. Um, if you know the University of Virginia campus, the, the Thomas Jefferson had this idea of the academical village. So a grouping of buildings that were clustered in a very planned way uh, and, and united again in an otherwise largely uh, agricultural and almost mountain landscape. Or if you know um, Columbia's uh, current campus, um, you know, it's, I would say maybe that's an urban precinct indeed set within city blocks of, of upper Manhattan, but, but largely a gated uh, enclosure inside of which you have fairly um, open spaces. Uh, Yale, Yale has to work always within these existing uh, parameters of these, of this city grid blocks are about 400 feet square, more or less. And, um, and I think it's really interesting. They start to build, um, again, in a whole variety of, of flavors and tastes. Uh, the collegiate Gothic is is one of the, the great signature styles of Yale. And certainly uh, James Campbell Rogers and, and John Russell Pope were two great architects. Rogers did much of the modern campus uh, as an architect, um, but worked also in a kind of neo-Georgian language uh, that proliferates. And then after the war, um, there was, I think, a very successful campaign of, uh, of modernist buildings uh, being added to this, to this growing campus. And one thinks of, um, Carrie, you and I, uh, you're, you're teaching at Yale this semester, which is so wonderful. And, and we're in um, Rudolph Hall, which is named after Paul Rudolph, its designer and, and um, seminal dean who who created this the, you know an extraordinary brutalist block, uh, or uh, one thinks of Louis Kahn, who we may talk about later, but um, who has not one but two buildings at Yale, two art buildings at Yale. Um, another building that that people may know uh, that's that's so important is the Aerosarinen's uh, Baker Rink or the Yale Whale, it's called, which is the ice hockey rink, uh, and it's one of the the great experiences to go to a hockey game there. The, the the roar of the crowd is absolutely thrilling, and the building is so sinuous and, and seductive. Um, or another building that many people might know is this magnificent collection of rare books that was housed in a building designed by Gordon Bunchaft, the, the Beinecke Library. Um, so there, there are a number of, of buildings that, again, occur over the course of a few centuries uh, that have dramatically different um, styles and characters and such. But I, I'd say particularly the modern buildings, I think, are successful at Yale. Uh, I attribute it in large part to... Um, the discipline of the uh, of the city uh, and the city grid that requires a certain um, cognizance and recognition of adjacent buildings and public ways and streets and such that makes them really successful. I mean, that was a, a great um, 
kind of overarching description that ties, you know, the development of the city to the development of the campus. Um, and then also, you know, that kind of permeates through the development of the individual buildings. And um, I think, I think it's a layered history. And it's one that um, if you anybody out there listening has the good fortune of traveling to New Haven and being able to walk the streets of the Yale campus, I think um, they would uncover and discover the world that you just described. And I mean, I think that sets a kind of beautiful backdrop for the conversation of the work that you're doing at Yale, because um, really, I guess New Haven is your home um, and it has been. Um, and your your practice now has engaged in a number of very meaningful ways um, in the continued development of the campus, I would say, even though the work could be described as work in preservation and adaptive reuse. Um, and, and you might describe it differently, but maybe we can delve into that, George. Um, tell me, how did you how did you begin to work um, on the uh, preservation work at Yale? Where did that start? So that that be, and maybe if I can give you a long winded or dis, discursive little trip through that, because I had no expectation as I had no expectation of working, for instance, and living in New Haven when I first came here as a student. I had no expectation as I graduated from architecture school that we would work uh, in any way with existing buildings. And so, you know, I, I, I you had mentioned that I had worked uh, with Caesar Pelley and Associates. Um, and um, that was a you know a very exciting thing. So I, I actually had intended to to see if I couldn't live and and have a life a career in Southeast Asia where I had visited and where there was so much uh, action at the time. This would be the mid '90s, and and it was a a, a, a teacher of mine who um, noted that there's a lot of architectural design that's happening. Um, in North America, it, it, that's that's being executed in those in those places. And in fact, he worked for Caesar Pelling Associates, who who was a stone's throw from the Yale School of Architecture. Caesar Pelling, having been the dean of the Yale School of Architecture um, for a number of years, um, and had opened his office in New Haven. So I, I walked in to visit that office, and there I stood, Carrie, underneath this gigantic model of the uh, Petronas Towers, these twin towers that Caesar Pelling designer are now built in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And, and I was very transfixed and it was certainly, all reports seemed to be true. And, and so I began uh, again, what I thought might be a, a fairly limited stint of work in New Haven, working with Caesar Pelling Associates. But in fact, I, I ended up staying there for 10 years and, and worked lots on um, buildings all over domestically and internationally. Many of them were in fact in, in Southeast Asia. And um, and they were, you know, tended to be quite large scale buildings. Um, so, for instance, I, I worked on three buildings in in Hong Kong, three towers in Hong Kong, in Mall, and um, uh, a number of buildings in Japan, um, uh, uh, some buildings in in the U.S. Um, uh, but they were all absolutely grand scale. And then um, I, it was it was. Uh, a sort of long, long series of events that led me to wonder whether or not I would stay uh, working in that building type in that milieu, and and a few different things happened that caused me to rethink that and set me on a very different path, the one that I'm find myself on now. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, you shared that you found yourself uh, walking through those fabulous um, courtyard blocks in. Uh, 
in Asia, this kind of pre-war urbanism. You find yourself drawn to that. And maybe much of the work that you were working on in Pelly's office, while you know, iconic and, and extraordinary, and probably in every architectural magazine of the day, I think maybe caused you to to, as you suggest, turn or shift. Is that is that right? Indeed. Indeed. Um I it was um it was in fact uh Terry, I had this experience where I was I was working for clients with whom I'd done a couple of projects already and and they were very excited. Um we were working in Shanghai uh and they uh had a parcel of land that they were very excited to soon be acquiring. And I remember while we were there for uh, another project, they they took me to a building uh, that was nearby a site um, that they that they were about to acquire, and we we went up to the top of this of this building um, and and looked down so as to see the site, and um, I think in their minds they saw absolute fantastic opportunity. Uh, but what I saw was something different. It, it, this you may be familiar with this Li Long Housing, which is a it's a fairly it's a very humble building unto itself. You know, two or three stories. I think these were really two stories um, that that was built up in in Shanghai and other and other port cities in China uh, in the middle of the 19th century, and and um, largely built around lanes. And um, again, it's not necessarily extraordinary architecture but it's a really vibrant urbanism which should survive for decades and and uh and what what i saw was really almost as if it was a large-scale lawnmower that was removing swaths of this uh of this housing which i knew to be you know very vibrant and um you know if perhaps in need of renovation restoration but by and large totally ready for action um, housing uh, to so as to clear a, a flat plane onto which, you know, a, a tower building would be built, maybe with a podium, maybe not. Um, and it, it made me wonder really uh, if it was the right building type for me to spend, you know, more, more of my life doing. Because as you know, Carrie, it takes, I think one of the things about being an architect is it takes a long time to do it, but it takes, a long time also to get decent at doing it. And so you pile all those years together and it's, you, you sort of, it's like a, moving a tanker, I guess, and turning the wheel of a tanker. It takes a very long time to move in another direction. And so I started to wonder as a, as a 30 something, whether or not that really is the, it, I, I think my tanker, I, so I started to turn the steering wheel of my oil tanker at that point, I think to extend well, the, the uh, well, metaphor. It sets sail in a in a beautiful direction. And I think this is a good way to take a quick break. We're going to take a break. But when we return, I'm going to continue my conversation with architect and educator George Knight, where we're going to delve into um, some of the iconic projects that he's been working on on the Yale campus. Um, so do not miss the second half of this conversation. We'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, 
affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Voice America Network proudly presents the Catherine Zox Show for women, men, children, and families. Catherine magically combines her compassion, experience, and talent to bring listeners a show that's upbeat, informative, and yes, a little sassy. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America channel. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with architect and educator George Knight. And just before the break, um, he was he provided a wonderful description of the Yale campus um, and the complexity of its development alongside the city of New Haven. Um, and really, that sets the stage for really delving into the conversation about your projects. So um, I think one of the, maybe one of the early projects that you did on the campus was the new building and the renovation of the St. Thomas More Chapel on the Yale campus. Um, so George, how, how did you come to work on this project? And Yeah, 
so I, 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 I feel really lucky. We've been able to work a lot of different places, but I feel really lucky to have been able to work in my hometown, as it were, on a, on a few different types of buildings. But one that's really memorable insofar as it, it spans all sorts of different you know, um, types of types of design and types of building was uh, work that I've done for the St. Thomas More Chapel. The St. Thomas More Chapel, it was was founded um, by a priest named Lawson Riggs, who had graduated from Yale at a time, frankly, when there were very few Catholics at Yale. Uh, it was a predominantly Protestant university. And um, Riggs, you know, felt that it was going to be very, very important to create a toehold, and it might not be more than a toehold at the time, a toehold for, for Catholics who um, wanted uh, an intellectual, spiritual life uh, that was tied to the university um, uh, and, and might be somewhat distinct from parochial life uh, or diocesan life, let's say. And so he petitioned the bishop to create a um, chaplaincy for students. Um, at Yale, and this is in the 30s. Um, so he, through his incredible powers of persuasion, he was able to achieve that and and to, you know, to literally fund and, and build a chapel that was uh, designed by a local architect of, of quite great skill, Douglas Orr and William Douglas. So he'd done a number of projects um, around the country, but he's, he's not, he's a little bit undersung, but I think he's a really extraordinary architect working at that that time care you know when there's so much transition and he seems to move fluidly between different building styles and is able to work on different types of buildings and this is a you know it it, it has echoes of a um uh, kind of neo-georgian um colonial revival uh, character that responds to the colonial revival architecture directly across the street of Yale, but it's very different. It's very inspired by Deco and um, other influences, Italian and, and Nordic influences, which are which are so subtle that you almost don't recognize them, but they they really do sing as you move inside. You have cut glass instead of uh, you know colored stained glass and very limited sculptural vocabulary, but very clear things in the, the form of the building is Spartan, but powerful, a giant arch um, at the apse and really, really extraordinary. So I, I had known the building for years. And even while I was working with Cesar Pelli, uh, it was really when my professional relationship began with St. Thomas More, because they asked, uh, a, a, again, a very, very um, powerful and wonderful priest who had a vision for, like Riggs, had a vision for modern Catholicism at Yale. And in fact, at this time, unlike where Riggs had operated in a situation where Catholics were a small minority, by the time um, this, this second priest, Bob Boulogne, took over, uh, Catholics were the largest denomination and, and really had, a, had an important place at Yale. And he felt that that could be magnified. So he wanted to build a Catholic student center and approached Cesar Pelli uh, to do it. And, and I was lucky enough to be able to lead that project at the, at the outset where we, um, you know, they, they had presented us with an imagination that by the time we ended up programming the building and talking to them and really receiving the vision that they had for it was sort of three times as big as what they had originally figured and they they set out to to raise the money I, I sort of never imagined that it would be successful but in fact it was and the and the institution is just boom they built the building the new building which is attached to the chapel um 
And then um, as I opened my own office, I was asked to come back and to do a number of projects there, which included the restoration of the chapel, uh, which for me was really a, a wonderful opportunity having worked. Again, I, I think I mentioned, Carly, that as I opened my office, I, I had no experience working with existing buildings. And um, there was a great lesson to me in, in, in doing so uh, that, you know, that one can actually extend languages and characters um, rather than necessarily breaking with them. And I found a lot of really powerful, formal and spatial and constructional logic in the original chapel that had been snubbed over a series of, of renovations that I think had kind of denigrated the building. And, and one of the things that was really exciting artistically was to be able to bring back many of the things that had been lost, these flamboyant wild chandeliers, for instance, um, and to extend things that didn't exist, but you know, liturgically things had changed, life had changed, the, 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 the number of students, all sorts of things had changed about it and demanded all sorts of new forms within the chapel. So to have the opportunity to, to actually add those things uh, but cognizant of the of the character and the stamp that had been so well established in the original architecture was a great lesson for me and one that I didn't learn in school, one that I didn't learn in the early days of my career, but turned out to be surprisingly pleasurable and liberating artistically. You know, I, we could probably do a whole episode on that, but for the sake of the listeners and certainly for the students and um, both at Yale and, and at the University of Miami, I think that you say a number of really powerful things there because I think a lot of the um, contemporary tenets of preservation and conservation really do set um, out the framework to always set yourself in sharp contrast to the original. And I think you're proposing a kind of an alternative way of thinking about it where we can have continuity and extension and authorship, quite frankly, new authorship, that, but that at the end of the day looks like a complete whole um, rather than maybe two uh, kind of disparate parts for lack of a better word. So again, I think a lot could be said about this, but maybe we could continue that as we talk about what I could imagine is an extraordinarily challenging project, but maybe you'll, you'll give us insights into this, but you were tasked with uh, the conservation of the Yale British Art Center one of the most iconic buildings on the campus, at least uh, those designed by Louis Kahn, the formidable American um, architect. And so uh, in, in light of the way we've been talking about the projects, maybe you could set the stage for how Kahn got the commission and then how you have engaged the building uh, since. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. No, this is so. So for your listeners, I'm, I'm many, well, many will know the name Louis Kahn. He, he's um, an extraordinary architect mid-century architect uh, some of you might know the the there's a wonderful film that was created by his son called my architect uh if you don't know him as an architect you might you might have seen that film uh which is very powerful unto itself um but he is an architect um in that in that film there's an interview with all sorts of contemporaries including i am pay and a, a statement that stays with me is pay noted that he, Pei, had designed many, many, many buildings, but um, that Khan, really, who designed only a few, had created masterpieces, each one. And, and you could see Pei, you know, quite wistfully and, and, and recognizing how, how, how the extraordinary achievement that, that Khan had 
had in, in this, again, handful of buildings. And one of the things that's remarkable about New Haven is that it happens to have not one, but two of those handful of buildings. So, and they happen to be directly across the street from one another. So Khan, Khan had, had, uh, he's from Philadelphia and, uh, but had his first, um, formal teaching, um, uh, arrangement was at Yale. So he would commute and, and spent a lot of time in New Haven, his first architecture students. And he, he won as a virtually unknown, um, architect, really just an educator, this, this phenomenally important commission to extend the, uh, Yale art museum, Yale art gallery. Uh, and it was it was to be the design center, um, where which included an architecture school. So uh, the Yale School of Architecture, Gary, where you're teaching, uh, you know, boasts uh, some very well known uh, alumni, including Norman Foster and Richard Rogers. Those two, for instance, were educated not in the building that you and I teach in, uh, but in the Louis Kahn Design Center, which is now fully part of the Yale Art Gallery and is really fundamentally a museum. So uh, that being Khan's sort of first major public commission, it's at the very end of his career where he is um, asked to return to the Yale campus and to design a home for a large collection of British art that will be given by Paul Mellon, who is a is a graduate of the school and and is a is a profound collector of art. Much of his collection of European art goes to the National Gallery, which his father Andrew Mellon was was so uh, beneficent to. But but Mellon sort of holds on to his British art, his collection of British art, which includes lots of paintings, lots and lots of drawings, lots of books and and um, and uh, prints, etc. And and gives that to Yale and creates this this center, museum and education center, right on the edge of campus. And Khan Khan is selected among group to to actually do that do that project. And this is the end of his career. He's his third museum building. If his first was the Yale Art Yale University Art Gallery, many people will know the Kimball um, Art Museum in in Fort Worth, Texas. And then this is his third. Uh, and um, it was an extraordinary building and, and i knew it as a as a 25 year old as i first came to yell it took me it swept me off my feet i was just so beguiled by it in many ways it's a really simple building i don't know you'd agree carry on it's mm -hmm. yeah it, it's uh it's massing it, it's you could say it is a box i don't think it's that's that's an insult to it it sits um squarely on the corner of uh, a very important intersection in town it happens to be directly across the main street from the rest of the campus um, and that meant that Khan and, and everyone who was working on the building had to think a little bit differently about it. They couldn't necessarily think of it purely as the campus building because it was the first time that Yale had built across this, this line Chapel Street. And, um, and it needed to perform uh, certainly as a, as a museum building, which was the primary brief, but it also had to work as an urban building. And so one of the things I think was really successful about it, and this gets this should be attributed to Khan, but <clears throat> to also to, to Yale University, to the city of New Haven, all of whom had, I think, a shared vision for how the building had to operate. Many people will walk alongside it uh, and not ever know that it's really a museum filled with, you know, priceless, extraordinary collection, uh, but rather know it as a place where there's a dress shop and a, you know, a cafe and a flower shop and, and et cetera. Uh, so it has a commercial uh, strip at its base. Uh, and, and again, for many people, that's the, that's the end of the story. And I think it remains really successful urbanistically because of that. 
But for those who want more, you know, you enter into a phenomenal light-filled uh, 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 atrium space uh, that that um, Khan originally imagined would be literally open to the sky. It's now sky lit, uh, and then you enter a series of of passages through this building, which uh, are are wonderfully continuous and you move from one atrium space up a um, a beautifully made cylindrical uh concrete uh stair into yet another beautiful light-filled wood paneled voluminous space that that they is called the library court off of which one finds uh, the collection studies room for for rare books and manuscripts and reference libraries and and then you move from there into a sweep of galleries that that span three floors and you know there's there's uh, visiting uh, artists or showing work and and there's uh, loan collections and then there's an extraordinary uh, uh, currently hung chronologically uh, display of of British art which is largely the melon gift that ranges from the probably the 15th 16th century through through yesterday uh, uh underneath these these magnificent skylit bays uh that are hauntingly beautiful as you stand there in in the not always so sunny weather of new england watching clouds bring the light down and then move and bring the light coming back up and it's the place is really alive even when there's no one in there so it's it's a building that i had loved as a as a student again and i was sort of pinching myself as we were asked to prepare an rfp to um execute a conservation of the building which i don't know Kari, the, the the idea of conservation is sort of a confusing one it's not it's not a term used too too much in american practice um is it worth talking about that a little bit yeah, I think if we if you could just give us a sense, um, and then yeah, I think it would be appropriate. Yeah, because I the, the um, there had when we the reason that we arrived at the building was that there had been a number of well intentioned um, alterations and and let's say fixes and repairs and such things to the building, which were done I think with all good intention, but we're we're causing it to move dramatically away from. Um, you know, the Khan's original vision. And the director at the time, Amy Myers, was the one who really said, we, we must we must pay more attention because she called the building the, the largest and most complex work of art uh, in the collection. So really took the position that the building itself was part of the, the center's collection and that must be treated so, which initiated a, a long study about the building itself and, and an English firm, Inskip and Jenkins, were heavily involved and wrote a conservation plan for the building, um, which was instrumental for us going forward. And it initiated what has been more than 15 years of, of more or less continuous projects because um, one can't do everything one wants to do in, in one go, but um, of of really conserving the building and and you know and, and and carrying out a number of different adaptations that that are necessary both programmatically and and mechanically and functionally to make the building do everything it needs to do in the twenty first century. Um, George, what would you say have been your greatest lessons of working on the building? Yes, I mean it's a, it felt like I was getting a masterclass in in Louis Kahn's work, and uh, I for which I I couldn't I couldn't summon enough tuition money to make it appropriate. Like it, it was so valuable to me as a, as an architect, and um, I would say one of the things that that Kahn is noted for is his um, his his careful thinking about 
building system by which I might mean electrical systems and, you know, um, mechanical systems and such, all of which are, are getting really sophisticated in the time that he is practicing. So, you know, a museum, a, a building of the, of the, let's say the 19th century would have radically simpler, I think, uh, set of systems and, and criteria than say a building of, of his time. And I think what was admirable about, about his work is that he took very seriously the aestheticization, the architecturalization of those things, um, and and oftentimes you you hear his citation of served and servant spaces uh, to talk about you know again those spaces that that are uh, required in order to to support the spaces that that are the primary use spaces. So we spent a lot of time in dark mechanical rooms trying to again almost reverse engineer that which we couldn't learn from drawings or other things to figure out how the building actually was working and things that i loved about louis Kahn, things that i carry with me was his knack for using um anatomical language to describe buildings so for instance there are two in the basement there are two giant air handlers which are so important to any museum that you know, purify and humidify and condition air that then gets pushed up into the uh, gallery floors. And it's not simply for human comfort, of course, in any kind of collections building, you're, in some ways, you're, almost your primary aim is to uh, make sure the work is protected. Khan called these lungs. Uh, and the electrical system, which moves throughout the building, beginning with a, a large bank, tra- trailer truck size, um, uh, uh, of, of, of switchgear, which he called the heart um, uh, of the building, pulsates out uh, through through throughout the building and uh, and the nervous system, et cetera. So he he it was a wonderful uh, coining a phrase and really humanizing architecture in a way that I thought was really beautiful. I, there's so much more we could talk about the project, and but I am we're coming to the end of the interview, and really so much more we could talk about your independent practice. But I have to ask you in about a minute or so, George. Can you tell me what your favorite city is and why? All right. I, and I'm sure you won't let me dodge this very difficult question. I know you too well. Um, I will say, and I haven't been there in 20 years or so, and I know it's really a different city, but I was so taken by the energy that I found in Hong Kong. Mm. And funnily enough, uh, you know, I don't know that it was the architecture, but it was the energy of the city and truly they're related. Um, but I, if, you, if you're forcing me to say, and I know you are, I'm going to say Hong Kong. Right. Well, that was an unexpected response. So I'm, I'm happy that you surprised me. And like I said, thank you so much, George, for taking the time to join on cities, um, a truly, you know, talented architect and, and really exceptional educator and I've learned about um, you over the course of a number of years, and I'm impressed by your generosity of spirit and your elegance and the way that you bring passion to your work. Again, there would have been so much more we could have discussed, but I'm glad that you could give us a window into this important work that you're doing to continue the legacy of Yale and beyond. So thank you so much, George, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join on Cities. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Carrie, and thank you for carrying forward Cities. Thank you. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 